Welcome to the audio channel of Dr. Sadaf. Preach Christ, teach the Bible, make disciples. Were exiled from the kingdom of Judah and found themselves in Babylon. It was a foreign empire under a foreign king, a nation that spoke a foreign language and was a pluralistic conglomeration of many different people's ideas and customs. In a similar way, we, being Christians, often find ourselves in a world that follows rules different than what we're used to. And Babylon, being a very diversified kingdom, has many similarities to America now. We are about 30 minutes east of New York City, which is one of the most diverse cities on the face of the planet. But not only are we living in a Babylon in the sense of living in America, there are also many Babylons we to each and every day. So I want everyone to close their eyes and think of that one place in your daily walk where you feel like a stranger in a foreign land, where everything seems to follow a blueprint for action that is different than what your faith and what your Bible teaches you. Now, so whenever I refer to Babylon in a figurative sense, I want you to think about your struggle and your uphill battle in that hostile environment. Your Babylon could be your job, your school, and dare I even say, the church that you go to, which doesn't apply to everyone here. We're talking to people online who are earnestly eager for the Word of God. So what can Daniel 1 tell us about how to navigate life in the modern world? What this sermon is not going to be about is fiery furnaces and lion's dens. Because let's face reality. In America in 2015, it is highly unlikely you will be put to death for your faith. Highly unlikely. Daniel spent one night in the lion's den, and his friend spent a couple minutes in the fiery furnace. They, however, spent decades surviving in Babylon. So what this sermon is about is to give you strategies on how to walk the good walk and survive and endure in an often hostile environment. So, how to survive in Babylon, strategy number one, preparation. Strategy number one, preparation. Benjamin Franklin once said, by failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. Abraham Lincoln once said, give me six hours to cut down a tree, and I will spend the first four sharpening the axe. Both men realized, and both men were very successful, the power of preparation. So what is preparation? The root of the word in Hebrew means firmly established, fixed, or ready. And that readiness is built upon a yet-to-be-realized future. Preparation touches upon every aspect of our Christian life. It's 
how often we pray, what we pray about, how often we read the Word of God, the quality of the Bible study. It deals with our relationships. It deals with our family life. It deals with the amount of service we contribute in church. And it also deals with when and how we fast and our tithing. Think of preparation as a spiritual bank account. And all the little things you do each and every day, you make a deposit in that spiritual bank account. So all the faithful things that there's never any fanfare about is a reserve upon which you can withdraw later. And here's the thing, with all those small steps and with each deposit that you make, that gives you a buffer against the future. And the better you prepare, the more you deposit in that account, which means you can now take hits in the future. You're not even thinking about now, but since you prepared and have a reserve, you can take a big hit and still remain standing. And here's the catch. There are many people who may fail to prepare and often find their spiritual bank account is overdrawn. And they therefore live in a perpetual state of overdrawnness. And always go to ask God, God, please save me from the scenario. And God, being gracious, always does and fills you back up. But the person may fail to realize that there is an error in preparation. And the better you prepare and the better hits you can take, the further along God will allow things to go and permissively allow certain adverse events to happen because he knows you prepare to handle the burden. But here's the thing. Preparation does equip you to deal with the unknown, but you'll never know how well you've prepared in Israel. You will only know in Babylon. Make that plain. Here's a story of Daniel. Daniel lives in the kingdom of Judah. Sixth century BC, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, besieges the city, exiles a whole bunch of people. Daniel was living a very, very comfortable life in what he knew in his home nation amongst people who were fellow Jews. They all studied the Torah. They knew about Moses and tradition. He was then exiled into Babylon by a secular king. But guess what? If Daniel and his friends weren't exiled, the book of Daniel wouldn't exist. In fact, Daniel would be a nobody that no one ever talked about. So the story of survival in Babylon is what created the entire book of Daniel. And without that pressure... Daniel could never quantify how well he had prepared in Israel, where he was comfortable or where he felt safe. In fact, God taking you from good to great often involves going through Babylon, which is why the path from death to resurrection always goes through the cross. The path to the Exodus always goes through 
Egypt. And again, without taking a hit, we will never know how well we've prepared. How does this practically apply? The leadership in this church has taken a recent initiative to make sure everyone is well-grounded in basic Christian doctrine, what Christians should know. Why? If you come up to me in church and say, I love Jesus, God is great, I will say amen. But you don't have to tell me that because all of us here are in Israel. In the world out there, one out of five adults is either atheist or agnostic, which means they believe God doesn't exist or they believe they can't be sure. So your ability and your preparation in knowing Christian doctrine is not judged amongst your peers here in the church in Israel. It is out there amongst non-believers in Babylon. And here's the thing. Preparation leads to ability. And ability increases your chances of surviving in Babylon. Let's look at Daniel 1, verses 3 to 4. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. Who had ability for serving in the king's court. When I read this sentence in Hebrew, my mind exploded. I'm going to tell you why. The word for ability in Hebrew, koa, it does mean might, but it also refers to a chameleon or a reptile that can change its skin color depending upon the environment it's in. Which means ability gives you chameleon-like qualities, which does not mean doctrine changes, which does not mean you change the infallible word of God. But it does mean if you've adequately prepared the environments in which you can survive in increases because you can adapt to the environments. Which means if you immerse yourself in scientific knowledge or immerse yourself in law or immerse yourself in medicine, whatever your particular liking is, you now have the ability to survive in Babylon amongst those specific groups. And these verses also tell us that Daniel and the exiled Jews were amongst the royalty and nobility in Israel, which means while they were in their home and everyone else was working in the land, they were enjoying themselves having tea in the afternoon overlooking their great estates. They could have used that time to not prepare. But the text tells us they, when they arrived in Babylon, they were already wise and endowed with much understanding, which means they used their time effectively and they prepared not yet knowing what Babylon's would lie in their future. 
and their preparation put them in the company of loyalty when their other fellow Jews may not have been, so, been doing so well in the Babylonian Empire. How does that relate to us today? You may be young. You may be a teenager. You may be 20-something, searching for what your calling is in life. You may find yourself displaced in a foreign environment, not yet knowing what you're supposed to do. And that's fine, because everyone takes a certain amount of time to get their true calling, get purpose and vision. But my question would be, are you preparing? Are you using your time effectively? And what are you preparing with? Because you're not, if you're not preparing and taking your time for granted, you may find yourself lacking ability and therefore hindering your chances at surviving in Babylon. So, what do you prepare with? Which is survival strategy number two. Principle. Or consider the source. Principle, consider the source. Daniel 1, verses 5 to 8. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So to recap, Daniel, living in Judah, exiled to Babylon. Nobility and royalty are chosen to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's court, and as a function of that, they are to be given the king's food and trained for three years. Now, Bible scholars debate exactly why Daniel refused to eat the king's food. They say it's perhaps the food was first sacrificed to Babylonian idols. They say perhaps it was the blood within the animal meat they were served. But what's more important is the principle that guided their actions. And what was that principle? The principle was the first commandment. Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. That's God talking. Jesus expressed the same sentiment when asked, what is the greatest commandment? In Matthew 22:36, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the reason why the first commandment is so important is consider the context. God came down to Mount Sinai himself in a cloud of thunder and fire. And he gathered all the people of Israel at the base of the mountain. Nowhere ever before and ever again did he ever call all of his people together. And God directly descended to speak to his people himself. 
and the God of the universe, being Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, knowing what will happen, could choose one thing to start off with. What is he going to tell his people first? And the first thing he says is this, you shall have no other gods before me. And that principle is so important, it's repeated again in Deuteronomy. In fact, the entire law is repeated again. How does this relate? Because Daniel, being wise, knew that eating the king's food would have given them a favored identity in Babylon. They could say, hey, we've arrived. Now we eat the same food and wine as the powerful king Nebuchadnezzar. And a bystander looking on would say, hey, what's the big deal? It's just meat and wine. But Daniel, therefore, would have been no different than anyone else. There would have been no distinction. Because Daniel realized that the food may have been fit for a king, but not fit for a servant of the king of kings. Let's say that again. The food may have been fit for a king, but not fit for a servant of the king of kings. Now, there are three ways to unpack that statement. Look at Daniel 1, 5 to 7. Look at the sequence, verses 5 to 7. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. So look at the sequence. You take our food, and now we're going to give you a new name. But there's more to that than the name. Because all four names, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, all have a specific meaning as it pertains to Jehovah, to, God, to the God of the Bible. For example, Daniel means God is my judge. But look at the board. All of the new names now pertain to a specific Babylonian God. So Nebuchadnezzar was smart. He basically says, sure, you take these resources, take this money, take this stuff that will increase your name and your privilege and your status in Babylon. But when you now take this gift, you're mine. Because the names you grew up with, the identities that form the basis of your whole walk, is now going to change in service of our gods. And again, an onlook would say, hey, what's the big deal? The big deal is that the food comes with the price of a new identity. And this is how Babylon always works. They'll give you something which you think is free. But the price you end up paying for that free gift is at the cost of violation of the principle, the first commandments. Look at how God works. God says, I already gave you the gift, and I already paid the price for you. Now be the person I created you to be. There's a difference. One is conditional. The other is uh, unconditional based upon a price that Christ already paid for you and I and everyone on the cross. Second way to unpack this statement. Turn to your person next to you and say, it's about to get deep. Get a pen ready. Everyone has their pen? 
Daniel 1 is another way of telling Genesis chapter 3. Let's break that down. If you were to get an estimated map of where Eden would be based on the book of Genesis and overlapped it with the map of the Babylonian Empire in Daniel's time, guess where Eden likely would land? In the Babylonian Empire. That's the first point. The second point is this. Daniel was offered wine. Wine comes from grapes. A grape is a fruit that grows on a tree, hence a fruit of the tree. And had Daniel eaten that wine, it certainly would have been desirable to make him wise because that was the entry ticket into being trained the Babylonian ways. It would have been good for food because it was wine and it would also be a delight to the eyes because of its intoxicating effects. So in many ways, Nebuchadnezzar's wine was very, very similar to the fruit of the tree offered to Eve in Genesis 3. And just like in Genesis 3, there would have been a particular cost to Daniel and his friends had he eaten the wine. But what's the difference? Adam and Eve were used to living in paradise from day one. They never had to go into Babylon. They never prepared or had a first commandment principle to rest their faith on. Daniel, having already prepared and relying on a foundational principle, could look back, could look back at the incarnate word of God and say, I've read this story before and therefore choose not to accept the gift of the fruit of the tree. Because he realized the price of that acceptance would be a new false identity. Third way to interpret this. A few more verses down in chapter 1, we learn that instead of eating the king's food, Daniel chose to eat vegetables instead. And this is where our interpretation of the Daniel fast comes into play. Because people think, often think, that the Daniel fast is more so about vegetables and what you're eating. But what did Daniel do? He refused food for food. He refused meat and wine and instead chose to eat vegetables, which means that Daniel fasts has very little to do with the food itself, but the source of the food. Because Daniel realized that distinction comes from our great refusals, not our common acceptance. And that distinction is rooted in the principle of the first commandment, back to Exodus 20, verse 3. So the question now remains, how do we maintain that principle? Which is strategy number three, persistence. In other words, the furnace is always burning. Persistence is the relentless dedication to a principle that you are always preparing for. Again, Daniel 1a. 
But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. Defile means to pollute, to desecrate, or to stain. And the only way you can know something is polluted is if you also know what is pure and untainted. And this is why in the beginning I said that I wasn't going to focus on fiery furnaces and lion's dens. Because I dare say that Daniel and his friends stepped into a lion's den and stepped into a fiery furnace the second they stepped foot into Babylon. And the minutia, the very, very subtle choices, which, does, which don't have a crowd and which don't have a lot of fanfare, end up being much more important than the big dramatic tests of our faith, such as lion's dance. Daniel, choosing not to accept the king's food, revealed his preparation, his dedication to a principle, and his refusal to depart from persistence that eventually led him to survive the lion's den. Had he not first initiated a great refusal with the king's food, he never would have made it to the lion's den because his spiritual bank account would have been empty and he wouldn't have had the reserve to deal with what God had in store for him. The figurative furnace, the smaller furnaces, which, pre which present themselves each and every day are much more subtle and equate to the big furnaces in our lives. Let me give you an example. This week, I was home alone with my son. My wife was going to get home late, and the nanny had left. So it was me and Nigel for a couple hours. So I'm sitting there on the couch, I had worked legs like in the gym, so I was feeling tired. So, you know, woe is me. I have the time to work out in the middle of the day. Feel very, very sorry for me. So I had a choice. I could sit there and watch TV or, you know, read something on my phone while my son, being almost two, could pretty much stay in the living room and entertain himself for hours and hours. And then the holy Elijah, who is on my right shoulder, he says, you're going to preach a sermon on Sunday about small furnaces. How can you sit there and not spend time with your son and watch TV and stuff? So the evil Elijah on the left shoulder said, yeah, hey, what's the big deal? It's just an hour or two really, you're a good dad. This doesn't really matter. What are you going to do? So then, good Elijah says, how can you preach to people about small furnaces and not follow your own advice? And then bad Elijah says, who's going to really know? The church won't know. It won't be on YouTube. Your wife's not here. What's the big deal? Then good Elijah says, it's the small furnaces which build up over time and equate to a righteous character. Now, evil eyes run out of ideas, right? So he says, come on, 
this is something small. You're really a good guy. Doesn't, it, this doesn't mean anything. And good Elijah says, are you going to wait until the big furnace when your son experiments with drugs or finds himself in jail to start acting right? Or are you going to deny the subtle invitation and step your game up? So evil Elijah is a cuss word and he's done. He can't say anything else. So at that point, my son and I went outside and had a very, very lovely time outside and enjoyed the summer day. Now you may say that is an inconsequential, subtle story that doesn't really mean much. But this is exactly the point. A bystander could say, no one observed that. That doesn't mean anything. It's minutia. Hey, what's the big deal? The big deal is that it's these small challenges that we're invited to and we're tempted with each and every day, which no one will ever write about, no one will ever talk about. Those, the, the minutia of our walk matters so much more because we're, we encounter millions and millions and millions of such challenges and added up over time, they amount to so much more than the big furnaces. And if you have mega dreams about making a grand scan, grandstand for your faith, I will say, God bless you. But before you keep your eyes on that end goal, you first have to focus on the minutia of everyday life. So, don't look out for the big challenges. Look out for the subtle invitations. IMDB's website, and they rank movies in how good they are. Millions and millions of people use it. I think the last count was like 24 million people. So according to tens of millions of people, they say Shawshank Redemption is the greatest movie of all time. Which, it's my third favorite, so I was like, that's a pretty good choice. So what is Shawshank about? Why is the movie so powerful? It's about a man called Andy, played by Tim Robbins. He was a banker who was falsely accused of murdering his wife and he was sent to a maximum security prison in Maine. I think the year was the 1930s or 40s, but it was a while ago. But Andy, being a banker, had a particular identity that differentiated him from the typical felon in the prison. So going into Shawshank Prison, he had certain ideas and outlooks about the world that Shawshank tried to destroy and contradict. So Andy found himself in a hostile environment where people had particular rules. They thought the way to get ahead was to actually crush your neighbor and to use violence and to intimidate them. But because Andy had a particular identity and a particular way of viewing life, he brought a new way of seeing things to the prison. So while everyone else lived in darkness, he was a beacon of light that showed him there is a better way. 
there's a way that transcends the walls of this prison, figuratively a way that transcends the constraints of Babylon. There's something greater out there that all of you can grasp. So instead of harming other people, he began helping them. He began teaching other inmates how to read, getting their education. He built a library. He would start using his skills because he had prepared and had ability to actually help the same guards who at one point would actually beat him up. Because his identity and his core ethos told him that if you only limit your focus on where you are in Babylon and allow your environment to dictate who you are and what you're going to do, you're going to succumb to Shawshank. You're going to succumb to Babylon. But as with everything else natural, Shawshank and Babylon have their expiration date already implanted on them by God. And look at how this relates to us. And, by the way, Andy inspired innumerable other inmates to get out of the prison, and he eventually escaped the tyrannical reigns of Shawshank. Because he knew, being innocent, he was never destined to be there. He was destined to get out and live a more abundant life in an area completely different than what Shawshank had to offer. How does this relate to us and Daniel and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? We live in a figurative Babylon. We live in an American society where it'll say, the way to get ahead is to crush your neighbor. The way to win means you have to gain at the cost of someone else. The way to secure certainty and to get in the presence of kings is to accept their food, to accept their ideology, to change your name, and to violate the first commandments. But Jesus said, no, there's a better way. I am the light of the world, and I have a gift for you that transcends your current existence. And if you prepare adequately, and you stick to a principle, and you persevere, I'm going to bring you through Babylon. And after you come out, you will eventually inherit a more abundant life with me forever. So when you have learned to survive in Babylon by first preparing, sticking to an eternal principle, and executing perseverance. Dying in Babylon for your beliefs is no longer a threat, but a testament to your calling. In the end, God's way will be vindicated. This is the faith of Daniel chapter 1. Jesus is the one who showed us a better way, a way to eternal life, joy, and fellowship with our Father in heaven. So let us all repent, recognizing that the kingdom of God is at hand. And let us all realize that survival in God's kingdom is the quest we should all strive for. Because long after Babylon the Great has fallen, as it says in Daniel 2.44, God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. God bless you.
Thank you for listening to this podcast from Dr. Sadafo. For more valuable information and resources, please visit chesadafo.com.